Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. We've all been there. One confusing email turns into 12 confused replies, and then a meeting to get aligned, and who has time for that? Grammarly is a trusted AI writing partner that saves your company from miscommunication and all the wasted time and money that goes with it. I personally love using Grammarly to help me strike the right tone when I'm sending important emails to my teams and business partners. I was amazed at how seamlessly it works with all the different communication tools I use every day. Grammarly works everywhere you work, integrating seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. No cutting, no pasting, no context switching. Personalized, on-brand writing help is built into your docs, messages, emails, everything. So join the 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Hey, small business leaders. At How I Built This, we hear all about how founders have built their companies from the ground up. Today's sponsor, JustWorks, is all about supporting that small business growth. Whether you're looking for help with payroll, benefits, HR tools, or compliance, JustWorks has you covered. Do you ever get tired of doing it all or feel like you're too busy cutting checks, filing forms, and browsing benefits to even think about the rest of your to-do list? Running a business takes a ton of work, but you don't have to do it alone. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. JustWorks can help handle some of the administrative work you don't love. With their easy-to-use platform, you can manage onboarding, payroll, and PTO all in one place. JustWorks cloud-based platform enables managers and employees alike to quickly and securely access benefits, payroll, and other HR functionality from anywhere, anytime. So if it ever feels like your business is running you, visit justworks.com slash podcast to see how JustWorks can help you run your business. That's justworks.com slash podcast. Hey, everyone, just a quick heads up that we've got a bonus episode coming your way this week. It's a really fascinating conversation I had about what it takes to innovate with three former guests of the show, Pal Kadakia of ClassPass, Perry Chen of Kickstarter, and Tristan Walker of Walker & Company. We recorded it live at our virtual How I Built the Summit back in May, so look for it in your podcast queue this Thursday, July 22nd. And today's show is from our archives. It's a conversation with yet another amazing innovator, Bobby Brown of Bobby Brown Cosmetics. It first ran back in 2018. Enjoy. I used to hire and interview every person that walked in that brand. And then I didn't anymore. And all of a sudden there were people working on my brand that I never met before and that I might not have hired. And, you know, it was a struggle. And I tried to let go of the details, but then I realized the details were what makes the company so special. And so I kept thinking I could fix it. If we could just do this, if I could get this, 
it could be better. And it didn't get better. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how a makeup artist named Bobby Brown built a billion-dollar line of cosmetics by doing one simple thing, making women look like they weren't wearing any makeup. When I was a kid back in the 1980s, my older sister had a collection of those porcelain Mardi Gras masks on her bedroom wall. And they had these colorful faces painted with blue eyeshadow and deep rouge streaks across the cheeks and the reddest lips that no human could possibly be born with. And the thing about those masks is they looked like models you'd see on the cover of fashion magazines. Models who didn't hide their makeup. Makeup that was loud and brash and the look was anything but natural. And this is the world that Bobby Brown kind of broke into as a young makeup artist in the fashion industry. She loved everything about makeup except, you know, the way it actually made people look. And so she was searching for a way to use it so that models looked like they weren't really wearing it at all. So, you know, lipstick that was the color of actual lips or blush that didn't make you look like you were blushing or eyeshadow that matched your skin tone. Now, this doesn't seem particularly revolutionary today, but back in the 1980s, when Bobby Brown started to mash together off-the-shelf cosmetics to come up with a new look, she was trying something totally different. She was trying to convince women that makeup could be, well, almost invisible. And some of her fellow makeup artists told her she'd have zero luck trying to sell that natural look. But of course, today... Bobby Brown Cosmetics is a brand that's been estimated to generate over a billion dollars of revenue a year, a year. And Bobby never thought of herself as a businesswoman. She didn't set out to design a whole new line of cosmetics. But even as a little girl in suburban Chicago, she remembers how much she loved watching her mom get ready to go out for the evening. My mother was the most glamorous, stunning woman. She looked like a young Jackie Kennedy. And I used to watch her put her makeup on with her false eyelashes, her eyeliner. She was skinny as could be. She'd be standing there with a cigarette hanging off of the counter, and I would just be sitting there watching her. And she, I watched everything. I watched her take her brown pencil, which now we know is lead, and fill in her eyebrows. And with a toothpick, put on false eyelashes and bronzer on her cheeks and a pale lip on and go out, you know, with my dad Wednesday nights and Saturday nights. Wow. And I was in awe. You know, I could never, ever, ever be that glamorous. Mm. And I was, you know, the shortest <laughs> um, always and, you know, not the skinniest. But I was really lucky because the other side of that, I had my grandmother and my Aunt Dallas who were more like me. Really simple, wearing comfortable shoes, you know, people comfortable in their skin. And at the same time, by the way, the be- the girls, the models that were really popular were Cheryl Teagues. Oh, yeah. And all these, you know, blonde Barbie doll looking girls, which I was not one of them. 
I, you know, had thick eyebrows and dark hair and, you know, I wasn't that. And then the thing that changed my life was going to see the movie Love Story. Oh, yes, with... Uh, with Ali uh, McGraw. McGraw, yeah. And I'll never forget, I, I, I was somehow in middle, I must have been in seventh grade, and I remember sitting there and looking at this girl with dark, shiny hair, parted down the middle, no apparent makeup, and literally, for the first time in my life, I said, I could be pretty, too. Hmm. She who, changed who, my life. Ali McGraw Allie and McGraw. Love Story yes. changed your life. Changed my self-esteem and my you know, my my confidence and figuring out who I am. So when you, uh, so when it was time for you to leave home and go to college, what did you, uh, what did you study? Well, I went to, you know, with a lot of my friends, there were probably a dozen of us that went freshman year of college to University of Arizona in Tucson. And I was so bored in hmm. school, you know, because you would sit in, you know, it's a huge university, and you'd sit in these big giant halls with 500, 1,000 people and see this little teeny professor at the, you know, lecture us with, you know, an overhead projector. And I certainly, it was not the way that I was meant to learn. So, you know, I went through the motions, and the end of the year, I came home and I told my mom I wanted to drop out of school. And my mother says, you can't. And I said, but why, Mom? It's so boring. I don't want to go to college. She says, I never graduated college. And she says, you have to. I said, but, Mom, I have no clue what I want to do. And my mother said, I remember the two chairs we were sitting at. I was sitting cross-legged, as I always do. And she said, okay, forget what you want to do with your life. If today was your birthday, you could do anything you want, what would you want to do? And I had no idea. And I remember, as I always do, quickly saying the first thing that popped into my head was, I want to go to Marshall Fields and play with makeup. The big Marshall Fields in, in downtown Chicago. Yep, it, actually in the suburbs because oh. that's where I live. But I wanted to go to the store and play with makeup. So my mom said, why don't you, you know, why don't you study makeup? And Wait, I said, yes. just then? Right just then? then? Why don't you study makeup? And I said, mm-hmm. mom, I don't want to go to beauty school. And she said, no, I'm sure there's a college somewhere where you could study makeup. Hmm. So I actually, my dad's friend told me about the school in Boston called Emerson that will let me study makeup. This is the summer after your first year of college? Right. It was literally two weeks before I was supposed to go back to Arizona. And my car was actually, you know, packed when I made the decision to go to Emerson. So it was it was like a it was like days before. I flew up with my dad, went to Emerson and they and I asked if they had a makeup program and they said no, but we have something called an interdisciplinary program and you can create your own major. And sure, you can study makeup. Hmm. I said I'm in. I'm going. And honestly, when I got to Emerson, I found myself because it was a school full of kids like me, creative, fiery, entrepreneurial, and you're creating films and you're creating, you know, all different art projects. And I remember even doing films and, you know, they pair you with someone. And instead of doing things the normal way, which is like, oh, what kind of films should we do? I remember thinking about what kind of makeup I wanted to do and writing the film around the makeup. Hmm. What was it about makeup that you liked or that spoke to you? Well, it wasn't even just the makeup. It was everything that goes along with it. Mm. So I've always been someone that knew how to use makeup differently than other people did. So 
And and doing theatrical makeup, making someone look old or like a character, was amazing for me because in order to do makeup for a play, for a film, you have to read the script, you have to talk to the director, you have to create what the what the person is going to look like. Mm. Did they have a hard life? How do you make them look tired? How do you make them look old? I'd have to go figure it out and understand it and then make the girls look like that. So when you when you uh, finished at Emerson, mm-hmm. did you was your intention to do theater makeup? Yes. So I graduated Emerson in 79 and a month before I graduated, I was in my bedroom reading um, Mademoiselle magazine and there was an article about a freelance makeup artist in New York named Bonnie Maller. And I never heard of a freelance makeup artist. And she was doing all the fashion shows and doing makeup work for Calvin Klein and Perry Ellis. And I wrote to her. And I said, can I come to New York and assist? Huh. She never wrote me back. Yeah. Oh, no. But, I was no, no, really but, excited for right. this, yes. No, no, no. She didn't write me back, but I looked her up in the phone book. Huh. And I called her. On her answering machine, she said, Hi, it's Bonnie. If I am not getting back to you, I'm probably on location. Call my agent, Brian Bantry, 212, blah, blah, blah. So I go to New York for a visit, and I call Brian Bantry. And he said, Come on up and talk to me. And he explained to me how the freelance works, and I started just figuring it out. So I, I moved to New York, and I didn't know anyone. You know, I had Brian Bantry, I had a meeting with him, and he started, you know, slowly calling me to, to be an assistant to some of his people. He didn't represent me, but he let me be an assistant. So you you get to New York and, and you decide that you want to be a makeup artist, and th- this was going to be your life. Like, so how did, you, how did you start to get jobs? Well, I actually thought I would do fashion on the side until I broke into TV. So one of the things I did, there was another makeup artist. Her name was Bobby, and she was the makeup artist for Saturday Night Live. I assisted her a few times. Hmm. Um, So, you know, that was cool. And I remember doing a couple times, you know, the makeup artist on the evening news couldn't make it. I would do that. So, I, you know, it was a – I started a freelance career. The only way I paid my rent at that time was my dad gave me $500 a month to pay my rent. Hmm. And and was um like at this time in in your life did you feel like there were expectations that you weren't fulfilling? I I don't know. I mean, you, you know, you came from this sort of middle class home in Chicago and your dad was a lawyer and and so were you ever thinking like, oh man, you know, like my parents have these expectations of me and and I need to I don't know. I mean, were you ever thinking like that or worried about no. that? No. Can I tell you why? One, I have this really weird gift. And, you know, you don't know it's a gift until you're, you know, of a certain age and look back. I am so naive. <laughs> so I never think something's not going to work out, and I never did. So I was not worried. You know, yes, I was always anxious about how I was going to pay the rent or if I had enough money for this. And my, I remember calling my dad one day, and I said, Dad... I just can't stick to this budget. I had a credit card with a limit. I think I had $250 a month limit, and I kept, you know, incurring all these fees. And I said, Dad, I can't stick to this. And he said, all right, stop for a minute. Put it down. I said, okay. He said, stop trying to stick to a budget or create a budget. 
why don't you figure out how you're going to make more money? <laughs> I said, hmm, okay. And I remember telling myself, Monday morning you get up and you fill your date book with appointments. So I go sees as they call it. So I went, I started making appointments. And as long as I, Monday was my day to fill it, and then I had the whole week to go see people. So I started calling um, magazines, and I'd look on the masthead, and I would see the booking agent. I booked with them. Hi, I'm Bobby Brown. I'm a freelance makeup artist. I'd love to come in and show you my book. I had a, you know, a book a, of like faces that you'd of faces that I've done. Made. Okay, yes, and you know, you start to make relationships. You come back and see people, and I did that for a while. So here, here's my question. I mean, what does it like? How are you? Good, like a better makeup artist than someone else. Like, what is it that you were able to offer? Well, all right. So let's go back to um, the '70s and the '80s. Hmm. The makeup back then was the epitome of unnatural. Foundation was pink. It stopped at the at the jawline. It was contour. Eyes were eyeshadow was yellow and purple and hmm. blue. It was all of those things. I was always doing. More of a now it's called a bobby face and now it's called nude makeup. But back then, it was just I always made people look healthier. I wanted people to not look like they were wearing makeup. And I even had one very very famous makeup artist, you know, who I asked his opinion on stuff. Said, "You will never work because people don't want to look like that." <laughs> and I <laughs> don't want to look like that. People yeah. want to look made up and. You know, I just couldn't do it. So even when I was doing makeup on TV, I had these really simple things I I looked for. I wanted to make the foundation to actually be the color of the skin. Yeah. And I had a mix and blend because most makeup on the market was bad. And you know, having a giant kit, I had everything. So I would kind of you know smush a lot of it together, and people started taking pictures of it. It looked really good. So you. Are getting steady work. You're doing more and more magazines. What was the first really big gig that you can remember getting, like a, with a major mm-hmm. fashion model? Probably two of my hugest aha, like back then, was when I had a six or eight page spread in American Vogue with a, one model, Tatiana Petits, and it was literally full face, full bleed, full face, a makeup story. Only on, you know, different looks, different makeup. That was like, put me on the map. Hmm. And then the next map was a cover of Vogue with Naomi Campbell. Wow. When was that? Now we're into, I think, 88 or 89, when she was just starting to be a huge, huge, huge deal. model. Yeah. So, you know, you are doing makeup and that's your life. That's your career. Yes. I was at the top of my game. And by the way, you do magazine work and editorial. It's fantastic. You... No matter how big it is, you still get $150 a day. Oh, so you really don't make a whole lot of money. No, but when you do advertising and catalog, like catalog at the time was paying between $250 and $500 a day, and that's when you do makeup on a bunch of models Mm. for a Saks Fifth Avenue or a Macy's. Right. And then if it's a commercial, you got a couple thousand. But everything you do, you meet people, and you, you you tend to move in packs. If a hairdresser gets booked for something they book you and then you know then you start doing advertising and that's you know could be up to five thousand a day and by the way while I did those things I also had a very very serious relationship I got engaged 
I moved out of the city. I had friends. I had a normal life. I started having kids at the same time. And I chose that. I chose that. I wanted to be, I wanted to go through that tunnel, put my hair in a ponytail, put my sneakers on, be in the park with my dog. You know, I'd rather be home with my husband and my baby than, you know, stay. I couldn't understand why they wanted me to stay at a fashion shoot until 10 o'clock at night, just because they took a long time deciding things. I'm like, no, I'm out of here at 6. Yeah. So... In 1990, I guess that was around the time when you started to kind of experiment with your own makeup. Yes. What, how, how did that even begin? How did that even happen? So I was pregnant with my first baby, and I was on a photo shoot for Mademoiselle magazine. No, it was Self magazine, and it was called Makeup Shopping at Alternative Places with makeup artist Bobby Brown. And I, they took me to different places. And one of the places downtown, I guess I took them, that I took the crew to was Kiehl's Pharmacy. Hmm. Um, and Kiehl's at the time was this independently owned cool place. I brought everyone down there. We were shooting there. And while they were shooting, I was talking to the chemist that was there. And he had a little, a couple lipsticks. And, and this is like, before Kiehl's became what yes, it was like, before, before it was private before, equity money or yes, whatever. before it was bought it by It was L'Oreal. just one... Yes. Shop, one shop. And did it look like a owned. pharmacy? Like, yes. Okay, everyone's yes. wearing white. and there Exactly. Was, and there was a chemist on site. There was a chemist on site, um, and he had these lipsticks. And I remember touching them, and I said, wow, these are really nice. He said, oh, yeah, I make those. And I said, you make them? And he says, yeah. I said, oh, I, I would love to be able to make a lipstick. He said, I'll make it for you. I said, I said all right, my, I said, what I want, you can't buy. I said, I want something that doesn't smell. I want it to be creamy but not greasy. I want it to look like lip color. I can't find a lipstick that looks like lip color. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, I, and I pulled out my taupe eye pencil and my pinky blush. And I said, look, at when you put this together, if you put a little bit of balm on it and blot it on your lips, he's like, all right, give me those things. And he went home and he sent it to me. And I said, oh, my God, I love this. I said, I bet I could sell this. And he said, all right, why don't you sell it for $15? He said, I'll make it, you sell it. You'll get $7.50, I'll get $7.50. I thought, okay, that's a deal. So I had a lipstick that I called brown because I thought it was brown-based, not because of my name. And then I thought everyone's going to love that. And then I said, you know what? Not everyone has the same color lips. And I started studying people's lip color. And then I sat down and I thought about all the different lip colors. And then I said, you know, some people don't like lip color lipstick. They like red, orange. Someone likes a good beige, a pink. But I said, you don't need 15 different pinks in your makeup kit. Let me make the ideal pink. Let me make the ideal orange. So I sat down and I thought of 10 different colors. I worked with a chemist. He made these colors. And I thought, all right, let's put a number, 1 to 10, but let me name them. And I wasn't going to name them the way lipsticks are named, you know, cherries in the snow. And I'm like, why don't we call them beige, pink, orange, red, so, you know, raisin. I named them what they look like. So you were doing, like, more understated Yes, shades understated and than what was on the market. What was on the market. Wearable, by the way, the word wearable. People could put them on and actually look good. How's that for a concept? 
so you would take like I'm just trying to to to, to get the right color to what was the name of this chemist by the way Stephen Stephen so to yes. get to get Stephen the right color you would take like I don't know paint or or different makeups and just like rub it together in like a petri dish right. or something and yeah and I would you know I would I would either mail it to him or I would say do this and yeah you know back and forth back and forth. He made them for me, and I did everything else. And you said, yeah, make like how many? Like five, ten sticks? I think, you know, he probably made a hundred of each color. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. So, no, once we agreed that we would be partners, there was nothing in writing. It was just, wow, this could be interesting. It wasn't anything more than that. And he had like a fabrication plant or the ability to like make moldings. Of, yeah, yeah, he did. I don't. Yeah. I think he did it in his home. You hmm. know, it wasn't. It was his side thing because he was a chemist. And what were you going to sell each stick of lipstick for again? Fifteen dollars. Fifteen bucks. Yes, fifteen bucks. And when I first started, my plan was to sell them to models, to editors. And then one day, I was having lunch with a girlfriend who was the beauty editor of Glamour magazine at the time. And she said, so what's going on? You know, we both had young babies, and I'm talking about the kids. And I said, you know, I'm doing – let me show you this thing. She goes, oh, my God, that's so cool. She said, can I write about it? And you had kind of a reputation in the industry because you were a makeup artist. Yes. You get this article in Glamour, and what happens? People started calling up and ordering lipsticks. Wow. And – um, you know, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm going to be rich. Oh, my God, I could pay my mortgage this month. It was just, you know, steady things coming in. And we got a bunch of offers. You know, people wanted to purchase lipstick. So I don't even think, you know, we sold 400 of them. I mean, we sold a bunch of them. This is not called Bobby Brown at this point, right? Yes, it was. It was. It was called yes. Bobby Brown. I didn't know what else to call it. You just put your name on the side. Yes. And that was really cool. And then I meet the lady at Bergdorf, and that's when things actually needed to change. You meet who at Bergdorf? I ended up going to a party in the city with some friends, and uh, friends that actually eventually were going to be our partners in the company. And I met her friend, Allison, and I said, thanks for inviting me. I'm Bobby. She said, nice to meet you. And I said, what do you do? And she said, I'm the cosmetics buyer at Bergdorf Goodman. Wow, that's nice. Well, I never even shopped at Bergdorf Goodman back then. And I said, wow, I'm doing this line of lipsticks. You know, perhaps you want to look at them. Hmm. And she said, love to. Let me bring them in. So what happened? You went, you brought your lipsticks to, to, to show her then a couple days later? She brought them in. I mean, I had no press release. I had nothing. She called me back, and she said, they're really interested. We'd love to take them. Hmm. And that's when I realized I had it really changed the way we were doing things. And, you know, I had to find a different way to scale up than the chemist because that was the only way he knew. So I parted ways with the chemist, and I had to find a lab to recreate the lipsticks the way I wanted and we needed to find someone to do it. I remember making all these calls, but then one day I was in an elevator and I said hi to the girl in the elevator and she said hi. I think we were on the 11th floor, so we had a few minutes. Elevator in your apartment in, building? In, in uh, my apartment building in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I said hi. She said hi. And I said, what do you do? She said, oh, I work at, at uh, a cosmetics lab in Queens. And I said, oh, <laughs> do you have a card? <laughs> And um, I 
had my lipsticks uh, recreated there, and they made my lipsticks. I met her in the elevator. Coming up, more chance meetings for Bobby Brown and how they helped her grow the company, and then eventually how that company got away from her. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. On How I Built This, we love to highlight businesses that are doing things a better way. That's why when I found Mint Mobile, I just had to share. Mint Mobile ditched retail stores and those overhead costs and instead sells their phone plans online and passes those savings on to you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at just $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. Before Mint Mobile... I was paying hundreds of dollars a month for my family's cell phone plan, and I still dealt with dropped calls and moody customer service agents. Not anymore with Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash built. That's mintmobile.com slash built. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash built. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is sponsored by Miro. If you haven't heard of it, Miro is an incredible online workspace. Our team relies on Miro for a lot of our own brainstorms and processes, and I think it's super useful to try out if you want to build something great with your team. One of my favorite features is the Miroverse. It's this collection of over 2,000 pre-made templates made by ordinary Miro users for all sorts of use cases, like collecting feedback, running meetings, icebreakers. It saves you the hassle of building from scratch. We actually partnered with the folks over at Miro to create a how-to-build-a-podcast Miroverse template to help you kickstart your journey on making your own podcast. Check it out and let me know what you think. You can find our template at Miro.com slash H-I-B-T. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash H-I-B-T. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash H-I-B-T to check out our Miroverse template for yourself. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. 
So it's the early 1990s, and Bobby Brown has come up with 10 new shades of lipstick. She's got a new cosmetics lab to make them and a department store that wants to sell them, Bergdorf Goodman. But in order to get things going, she needs an infusion of cash. We pretty much uh, emptied our bank account, which was... I remember 5,000, my husband remembers 10,000. I trust him more than I remember my memory. And we actually partnered with these friends of ours who one girl was in PR and the husband was in the cosmetics industry. You know, So the four of us partnered together. The, the, what were their names? Their names were Roz and Ken Landis. And why did you decide that you, you wanted to, to partner with, with other people? Because my husband and I did not have the expertise. Hmm. You know, we had no idea. We were, you know, 31-year-old kids, you know, with a new baby. He was in law school. He was a real estate developer. I was a makeup artist. I knew how to make these make the lipsticks. I knew what it should be. And we were friend this couple that we were friends with. He had been in the cosmetics industry and she was in PR. So it was, you know, a magical pairing. That's how we started the brand. And Bobby Brown is born as a product at Bergdorf Goodman. Yes. And how does it do when it debuts there? Well, we thought we would sell 100 lipsticks the first month, which, you know, that was the thought. And we did 100 the first day. And were you in, in the store? We were. On we had Fifth a, Avenue, right? On Fifth Avenue. Yeah. And there was no room in the cosmetics department. So they put us on a table outside of the cosmetics department where I think they had, you know, handbags. And so, you know, it wasn't for any other reason, but people thought it was a brilliant, genius idea that we marketed ourselves apart from the noise of the cosmetics floor. So you could finance it with whatever cash you had between the four of you, and then then you would sell product, and then you would get Mm -hmm. paid by Bergdorf Goodman. When did it go to the next store? Well, we were at Bergdorf. Well, we we added pencils, and then we added eyeshadow. Like, we did everything not like strategic, but as they came up right. and we we added them. And we were pretty much with the same lab for most of the time. And then Bergdorf, you know, one day we were doing so well at Bergdorf Goodman, they said, you know, we're a sister company of Neiman Marcus. They would love to try you in four stores. Hmm. So we opened up four stores in Neiman's. And um, a store is like a counter, right? A counter, yeah. yes. They call them doors, actually. So right. we opened four doors, four stores, started adding you know, products, and I would visit the stores and do personal appearances, usually with my husband and my baby or babies hmm. you know, in tow because we always – you know, I never like to be apart from them. Yeah. And they always came. And I would travel to these markets – and I would be on their local TV. I'd be on in their newspapers. So it was a full-on, you know, press thing. Were there? Did you ever get a vibe from people like, well, who are you? Um, certainly, you know, and especially in Dallas, you know, where they would look look at me like she's the plain Jane type, you know, because in <laughs> Dallas, the makeup, the hair, the yeah, jewelry, right? You know, it took a while to. And that's you know, Neiman be, Marcus. Territory. That's Neiman's. That's yeah. the fancy stuff. You yeah. know, it took a while to be beloved by those women. But also at the same time, I was becoming a, a known beauty expert on the Today Show, ah. which was really a major launch in the the brand and the business. So the story behind the Today Show was that I wrote my first book about about cosmetics, about makeup. Yeah, and then I was happened to be in Florida doing a personal appearance for one of my 
makeup products and also for my first book. And I'll never forget, it was in, you know, the inner circle, which were the fancy ladies at Neiman Marcus. I finished my speech and I said, any questions? And this little redheaded lady, you know, grandma type, raised her hand and I went back. You know, I remember I put my hand on her shoulder. She was so cute. And she said, yes, I have trouble keeping my lipstick on. How do I do it? And I said, well, and I gave her the answer. And she looked at me and she says, thank you. She said, are you Jewish? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, I've seen you on the Today Show. I've been on once. I said, thank you. And she said, as a Jewish, this is off microphone. Mm-hmm. She said, she said, you've done so much. Is there anything else you want to do? I said, I don't know. I said, I don't know. Maybe I'd love to be a regular on the Today Show. She said, honey, Jeff Zucker is my grandson. <laughs> Jeff Zucker was the executive producer of the Today Show at the time. Oh, my God. And um, it was a Friday. Monday, I was on the Today Show. I was in my dressing room. You know, my PR team at the time was beyond excited doing how to put your makeup on something. Probably Katie was interviewing me. Jeff came up and he said, Grammy, you know, wanted me to have you on. I said, that's awesome. And he said, I hear you want to be a regular. I said, I'd love to be a regular. He says, okay, you're a regular. I said, when when can I come back? He said, how about next month? I said, okay, once a month? He said, okay, fine. I was on the Today Show for about 12 years, 15 years. And honestly, being a beauty expert on the Today Show probably put me on the map. Wow. And you did this at, the, at least at the beginning for free? Uh, I know. I, they, never, they never paid me a nickel. And I never, ever pushed my brand. They would say Bobby Brown from Bobby Brown Cosmetics. It was an amazing thing because it, it established me as a beauty expert, not just someone who makes makeup. It was really my expertise. So it separated me, the person, from the brand, which was good, but it also really helped the brand. You, in, um, in 1995, five years after you first make those 10 lipsticks, you get an offer – um, I guess you pretty early on, you guys are approached by mm-hmm. big the big cosmetic companies who wanted to buy your brand, and you I guess you rejected a couple offers at the beginning, right? right? Mm-hmm. Who, who yes. by the way, who were they? Who offered you? Let's see. Um, there was a lot of talks with Shiseido. Oh yeah, the Japanese company. Yes, a lot yeah. of meetings, a lot of talks. No official offer, but a lot of meetings. Okay, and then there was a. Um, a Dallas-based company that tried to buy us, a Mm -hmm. finance company that basically finally said, if you won't sell to us, we're just going to knock you off with another makeup artist, which they did, um, which is fine. I'm never afraid of that. Oh, they created a knockoff brand? Well, well, it was a different brand, but yes, a makeup artist, Mm. you know, a a well-known makeup artist that created products. Hmm. Is it still out there in the market? Yeah, Laura Mercier, oh. you know, was a competitor. I mean, we were very we were always very different and that was fine. And um they wanted to kind of buy you out and and They did. They wanted to buy yeah. us. We weren't for sale. We didn't think they were the right people to buy us. And we weren't for sale when, you know, we got the call from Estee Lauder either. This is 5 years after you launch it. Estee Lauder calls you and you take the call. Yeah, I kind of think it was four years, but four, yeah. Four years? It was four years. So I got a call from uh, Frederick Fakai, who, you know, had a salon and was a well-known hairdresser. And he said, you know, Leonard Lauder would like an introduction to you. Can I do that? And I said, sure, sure. So um, we were invited to have dinner uh, at Leonard Lauder's home. My partner, Roz, and I were invited one night 
to his home, and um, him and his wife at the time, Evelyn, we had a beautiful dinner and, you know, fell madly in love, you know, with him, with her. And he basically said, you know, I'm really interested in buying your company. You've done, he said, what he said to me, he says, you've done such an incredible job. You are beating us in the stores. And we were beating Estee Lauder and Neiman Marcus at the time. You are beating us. We can't beat you. So we thought we would buy you. And you were open to hearing hearing offers? Well, when Leonard said to me, you know, that we can help you grow your business and you could do what you really love, which is be creative and work on shoots, work, you know, on the brand but not have to worry about the details, and we could help expand your business and you can have complete autonomy, you know, which means I could do what I wanted with the company and still be in charge. Hmm. And they were they were offering 100%. They were going to buy 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. And I guess we'll just burst the bubble here. You did sell to them, which we we'll did. get to. We did. But and no one's ever gotten the number right. And I'm not good at numbers, and I can't even tell you what it is. But it was, like, more than I could ever have imagined. It was a lot of cash. Yes. Now, you had to, of course, split it with your partners and then pay your taxes. But you were left with a, more cash than you'd ever had in your life. Yes. All right. Just pause for a yep. sec. Looking back on that decision in 1995 mm-hmm. to sell to Estee Lauder for whatever price they offered you, some people say $74 million, let's say $50 million, whatever it was. More. More. Okay. $100 million, who knows? Something, yeah. Was it the right decision to make? A hundred percent. It was the right decision to make? A hundred percent. You couldn't have scaled Bobby Brown to what it is today without that investment? I don't know, but I didn't want to. <laughs> because? Because I just wanted to have a fulfilling life with mm-hmm. my family, my friends, and my kids. Yeah. I, I There's no question. I have no regrets. Becoming a billionaire wasn't wasn't that – that wasn't no. like that. Yeah. No, millionaire is fine. Millionaire is great. You don't need to be, a, don't need to be a billionaire. Yeah. All right. So Leonard Lauder writes you a big check. And Estee Lauder now owns Bobby Brown. What does that mean? Does that mean that you then become an employee of oh, Estee yes, Lauder? Oh, yes, an employee. Yep. They paid you a salary. You were an yes. employee with a 401k yes. and all that yes. stuff. Yes, And And at the beginning, was it? did you like it? I loved it. <laughs> it was fantastic. I loved it for, you know, out of the 22 years, I probably loved it for 15. And, and so the idea was once Estee Lauder was running the business side, you didn't have to worry about going to banks for financing. You didn't have to worry about supply chain. You didn't have to worry about payroll or accounting or not filing a letter with the Office of Tax and Revenue. Mm-hmm. And you didn't want to do any of that stuff. Oh, I had no interest. I didn't like the big corporate meetings. And I would sit there in some meetings. And I know I used to drive people crazy because I didn't do things the corporate way. And I'm sure people either looked at me as brilliant or really difficult or, you know, whatever. You know, the thing is, unfortunately, men could be brilliant when women are considered difficult. <laughs> I can't imagine that would have been an easy transition. Um, it wasn't easy, and I'm sure it was harder for, you know, our partners at the time. They didn't stay very long. Mm. You know, we we had a little bit of a tough relationship, you know, for a while because, you know, you start a company with friends and, you know, things happen and things get tough and it was a tough time. There was a bunch of years where thing, there was a struggle between, you know, Roz and I and then the four of us and, you know, after, you know, we sold the company, they 
Um, they moved Roz off the brand, and she ended up working for the company for a while, and then she left. And um, it strained your friendship. Oh, really strained it. Do you think that it's a good idea, in general, to avoid going to business with friends? Yes, it's not a good idea. <laughs> okay, all right, a hundred percent. And and you know we. We're not friends for many years after we sold the company, and we just recently got back hmm. together the past couple years. So, um, you know, life is interesting. You're at a place you just discovered, and being an American Express Platinum Card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Oh, okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say... Nothing, because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. One thing we love about Constant Contact is that they offer expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. You uh, walked away from Estee Lauder in 2016. Walked yes. away, maybe is not the right term. I don't know. Right. But, but I don't even know what the right term is. It was it was a joint decision. And was that hard? I mean, your name, your right. company, you built it, right? And and that's it. You're out. Well, like probably two to five years. Five years was a struggle. The last five years. The last five years was a struggle. But just because. Just because you know the, it got so big. The company got so big. The corporation got so big. They bought so many other companies. It was growing. It was huge. I am not a follow-the-leader kind of person. (laughs) I am the leader, okay? I can't help it. And if I see things not working where it makes sense to me and wasting energy and time, I don't like it. And I like to do it differently. So, you know, and I like to try new things and invent new things. So, yeah, it was always a struggle, always a struggle. And so then the last couple years were really tough. Like what happened? Oh, my God. There was just, um, you know, they start. And I used to hire, ever, approve and hire and interview every person that walked in that sure. brand. And then I didn't anymore. And all of a sudden there were people working on my brand that I never met before and that I might not have hired. And, you know, it was a struggle. And I tried to let go of the details But then I realized the details were what makes the company so special. Hmm. And so I kept thinking I could fix it. So I would walk in every day with an imaginary, you know, tape around my arm saying, okay, let me fix this. Let me fix this. Let me fix this. I couldn't. Hmm. And, you know, the last year was really tough. I'm sure they were not happy with me. I was not happy with them. 
and it just was time for both of us to move on. Was it tough in the sense, like, you dreaded going into the office in the morning? Yes. Wow. Not only dreaded going in in the morning, I was depleted and spent when I came home. So for two years, my Aunt Alice, who, you know, was 80 at the time, would say to me, it's time. (laughs) My husband would say, are you ready? (laughs) Like, my friends would say, come on, enough is enough already. And I kept saying no, because I think if we could just do this, if I could get this, you know, it could be better. And it didn't get better. Like, I'm imagining I'm walking down some street in New York. I pass you, and I know it's Bobby Brown. I'm like, oh, my God, Bobby Brown, I love your makeup. And you're on your way to work, and you would say, oh, yeah, thank you so much. And I wouldn't know that you were miserable walking to your powerful job at Bobby Brown. No. Honestly, if you really ask me why I left, I needed to be the boss again. Yeah. Like when you're the boss, then, you're, okay, something doesn't work, we could fix it. So, yes, I, when I left Bobby, it wasn't easy. The second it happened where I went down the elevator and, and I knew that it was that second it was done, I had a relief come over me. Hmm. Like I can't tell you. The first relief was, oh, my God, all these problems are lifted. All right. So here's the thing. We've had – uh, lots of founders in the company who sold and then, you know, s- some some were angry with the way it was run and and some have mixed feelings, some indifferent. It depends. But, you know, Ben and Jerry, for example, those guys, they'll, they'll knock Ben and Jerry's now and again in a good-natured way, but they will still – they're still the face of the brand and they're happy to kind of be the brand. Not happy, but they are the brand ambassadors. Yeah. So did you ever think of doing that? No. No. I had no interest. No, you wouldn't. I, it was offered to me. Like the Bobby Brown, I mean, the face yes. of the, you didn't, had no interest in that. No interest. I don't care how much money they offered me. Why? Why, why because not? Because what I love, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I like to, to mold and shape and be in control <laughs> of how things are. Yeah. And so, no, I have, no, I had no interest. You know, honestly, it's been a while. It took I'm not going to say I walked out the door and it was fine. There was a lot of emotion the first month or two. There was a lot of emotion, you know, the first year. Now it's, you know, year and a half. I literally could look at what's happening there, and I and I unfollowed everything, so I don't see anything. But when I do see it, it's like there's nothing there because it's not the company I I founded, and it's not the company that that it's not my company. It's their company. And yes, I'm really proud of the products. I'm proud of everything I did. But, you know, the world has changed and what they're, the direction they're going is fine is what they want to do. And by the way, were you, were you prevented? Are you prevented from your contract with Bobby Brown of starting a makeup line? Um, oh, yes. You can't um, never do I, well, that for the rest of your life? No, no, that's not accurate. You know, but I, my name, I sold my name. So you can't, you can't use the name Bobby Brown anymore? No, no. no. But I would never, you yeah. know, I wouldn't, I would never put, even if I could, I would not put my name on a product anymore because I have to be the face of that product. I don't want to be responsible yeah. for everything. I did that already. So, Bobby, with all this, the success that you've had in your career, how much of it do you think is because of your your intelligence, your hard work, and how much of it because of luck? I think that um, my my intelligence is mostly emotional intelligence, which is, you know, dealing with what's around me. I am incredibly lucky and, you know, fortuitous and grateful and all of those things. 
I'm not the only one that works hard. I am not the only one that seizes opportunities. I don't know why, you know, things I do are successful. And not everything I've done is successful, but I keep going. And I'm really good, what I'm really good at, and I hope there's other entrepreneurs out there that understand this, I am really good at hiring people that are good at things that I'm not. That's really important because I'm not good at everything. And I'm not, I told my Aunt Alice, I'm not really good at anything. I'm just good at telling people what to do. <laughs> I'm really good at telling people what to do. <laughs> That's Bobby Brown, founder of Bobby Brown Cosmetics. And although she can no longer use her own name as a brand, she can sell her own makeup again. Her non-compete with Estee Lauder ended last year, and she just came out with a brand new line of makeup called Jones Road. And by the way, how lucky were you to have such a cool name, Bobby? I never liked my name growing up. You hated it? Oh, yes. When they decided what to name me, I was named after my great-grandmother, Berta. Thank God they didn't name me Berta. I'm not sure anyone would use lipstick called Berta Brown. Berta Brown. You could just, that, that could be your new yeah. line. You yeah. could be Berta Brown. No, maybe you it's know time. What? Maybe, Bobby, maybe it's time. Yeah. Berta, I'm not sure that would work. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. It was produced by Rachel Faulkner with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. Hey, everyone. It's Guy Raz here, and I have a new show that I think you're going to love. From Wondery and hosted by Laura Beale, the critically acclaimed podcast Dr. Death is back with a new season called Dr. Death, Bad Magic. It's a story of miraculous cures, magic, and murder. When a charismatic doctor announces revolutionary treatments for cancer and HIV, it seems like the world has been given a miracle cure. Medical experts rush to praise Dr. Sirhat Gumruku as a genius. But when a team of private researchers looks into Sirhat's background, they begin to suspect the brilliant doctor is hiding a shocking secret. And when a man is found dead in the snow with his wrists shackled and bullet casings speckling the snowbank, Sirhat would no longer be known for world-changing treatments. He'd be known as a fraud and a key suspect in a grisly murder. Follow Dr. Death Bad Magic on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Dr. Death Bad Magic ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The global smartwatch industry is worth $45 billion annually. The Apple Watch is the undisputed bestseller, but Apple's dominance wasn't always a given. In the wake of Steve Jobs' death, Samsung was ready to capitalize on the company's uncertain path and beat Apple to market with the first smartwatch. By 2013, Samsung had become an electronics powerhouse, a far cry from its humble origins as a family grocery store. It was ready to take on Silicon Valley's finest. In this face-off, both companies will have to sway consumers while surviving PR disasters as they open the Pandora's box of interactive biometrics. Hi, I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery's show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. And in our latest season, we're clocking the fierce battle over wearable technology between Apple and Samsung. Make sure you follow Business Wars wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.